if you're, especially if you're home with the kids all day, you're working a seven day job and federal labor law dictates that we have to have two 20 minute breaks and a half an hour lunch and an eight hour shift. I mean, so if, if you're sleeping for eight hours, which that's negotiable, say you have two eight hour shifts, that's at least two hours, 20 minutes that you get off. So how are you getting that? I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. We are thrilled to have author Jancy Dunn on the podcast today. Our community read her book, How Not to Hate Your Husband After Kids. In this book, Jancy interweaves storytelling of her personal struggle with motherhood and partnership. She also adds a boatload of research and tangible advice. Abby and I both love the book and our community echoed that sentiment. So Jancy, please introduce yourself for our audience. (laughs) <laughs> Hello, I am. Um, I've written a couple of books for um, adults and for kids, and this one was um, the hardest to write, but also the most fun. And I have lived in Brooklyn for many years, but I recently moved, and I'm talking to you from my sister's house, where there's seven people and three cats. Oh my goodness. Um, so it's a little chaotic, but fun. And, um, and I write for, you know, various magazines and newspapers, um, New York Times parenting a lot. And I'm going to stop talking now because I could just go on and on about, you know, <laughs> what I do. But that's, that's kind of the gist of it. Oh, we love this. Jancy, I'd love to get started by asking you, why did you decide to write this book? And also <laughs> about the name. So how to not hate your husband after kids. How did that come to be? I know it had a lot of husbands a little bit worried when they saw their wives reading it. Uh, Of course. I I do understand. And in fact, we had um, a meeting with the marketing department to consider giving the book a false cover, like introduction to quantum physics or something, you know, but it it ends up, it ended up being too expensive to do something like that because (laughs) I know, I know the title is uh, a tad inflammatory. Um, And I was thinking, okay, so, how I decided to do the book is I had, um, before that I had um, co-written Cindy Lauper's autobiography and she was a lot of fun, just what you think she'd be like. And I was kind of casting around for another idea. And I just, I just sensed when I was on the playground with all my friends who were moms, this kind of undercurrent of, of stress and this thing that nobody was talking about. And when you're a journalist, you're always attuned to those kind of sub issues that are going on. Right. And, and I just found also in my own life, I wrote the book because I felt so isolated when I had my daughter, I thought, is anyone else fighting? Like we are, what, why is, you know, you go on social media and everyone's hashtag so blessed. Right. And, and, and everyone looks like they're well slept and that the baby's um, doesn't have colic and that everyone's having sex again. And it just, I just felt like, why is no one talking about this? And I couldn't talk 
about our fighting to my parents because my mother has a really long memory and 25 years from now she'd remember things that you know Tom my husband said to me and I couldn't really I couldn't even talk about it with my friends and my friends can talk about it with me after I wrote the book I heard from many friends who said oh god you know we didn't talk to each other for months and I would think we're talking about like intimate hair removal and and our parents you know dying and we we can't talk about this so it was just it was taboo and so I wrote it so that other people, other women in particular, wouldn't feel the shame and embarrassment that I did. And so, yes, the name. I was on the playground again with my friends. And my friend Jenny, who's a stay-at-home mom, said, why don't you just call it, you know, we thought of all these clever titles. And she said, just how many to hate your husband after kids. It, you know, women are tired, especially the first few months. You need something that's going to grab their attention. This, this pretty much does the job. And, and I brought it up in the, to the marketing department again of the, the publisher, and I said, I don't know about it. It's a little harsh. And they said, no, 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 no. It's a grabber. Yes. And when you read the book, you see that, of course, it's not anti-husband. And I do take a hard look at my own behavior and what I was doing wrong. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I have thought a couple of times, like, gee, I wish I had done a different title. But if it was how to love your husband after kids. Would that have been as impactful? I don't know. And to, to your point, what you're saying is vulnerability really does open doors. Anytime that Abby and I show vulnerability of something we're struggling with, it just opens the door and so many other women are saying, me too. So I think that's what your book does. So you were vulnerable throughout this whole book from talking about how frustrated you got with your husband to introducing us to some terms like dickwad, to talking <laughs> about your sex life. Was it hard to share all of this with readers, with perfect strangers? Oh, God. Yes, I have never written on, I mean, I write about health and mental health and all kinds of things for magazines and newspapers, but this was a whole other level of being intimate. But I, I thought, okay, you know, you, you have to go all in, right? Like if, if you're going to do it, you should just go there. And so I went there and, and I'm a very private person, which you would never get from the book. And my husband is even more private. This is his nightmare in a lot of ways. And I have to, <laughs> he is, you know, I have to hand it to him. He's a journalist also. And I said, you know, if we're going to, you know, I didn't know that the book was going to end well necessarily. I mean, I was, we were on the track for a divorce. So no matter how it was going to end, he had to jump in and he said, no, no, if, if you're going to do it, I'll, I'll too. But it is hard to get past that impulse. Again, going back to social media to present an image to the world that you got this, you know, and that you regularly shower and, and that you're together. And, um, and I, I did, I wanted very much to avoid the sex chapter entirely. My parents are both living. They read everything I write. My sisters, I, I, I asked my editor, can, can we maybe not include a sex chapter? But it is one of, I mean, the big three in terms of problems after kids, isn't it? I mean, money, mm -hmm. sex, housework. So I, I had to go there and I just tried to do it in a way that didn't completely throw my husband under the bus. You know, he, he got to, vet everything that I wrote. And he was surprisingly okay with it because it was all real. It was all as authentic as we could be. But, um, but it was even a lesson for me to, you know, you're not going to move forward unless you show vulnerability, both um, 
you know, for me professionally, but also just in your relationship, even though it can be so difficult, it's so hard to do. So hard to do. And you being authentic is exactly what made women just nod their head the entire time and say, yes, this is the book for me. So one of our listeners, Katie, she has a very timely question. How did you see your relationship change after being quarantined for so long and everyone being home? So Jamie, do you guys still live in New York? Like I'm sure quarantine has to be even more challenging because you guys are in such small living quarters. Yes. You know, I mean, the one good thing um, just for us is that we did, the book was good timing in that we did have the tools in place for having to negotiate with, with each other just from having done the work in the book. So for us in close quarters, it wasn't as, um, bad as it could be. But, you know, I, I, I hear all the time from um, families who are challenged by this, because this is just a whole other level of togetherness, isn't it, that nobody banked on. And um, so, you know, I mean, the sunny answer to, um, to the question posed by Katie is that, you know, this is an opportunity to see what's not working in your relationship, because there's nowhere to hide. You can't blame things on other people. You can't blame things on, oh, I had a long commute. There's no commute. Um, This is sort of laying bare what systems are working and what's not. So even now, you know, it's not like I have everything or we have everything perfectly in order now. We still still squabble and we still have to adjust things all the time. So, you know, in, in our in our own life lately, in, in terms of our systems, it was noticing that our child should do even more around the house than she's doing and that we were, you know, picking up the slack for her too much. And also, um, I mean, just lately, I was trying to think about this before I was talking to you, like what, what systems aren't working. And it's my husband, Tom's reflexive habit of protesting when I ask him to do something. Like I'll say, can you just can you take out the trash or whatever? And he does it, but he protests first. He'll, he'll say, why does this have to be done now? Because the trash smells, you know, and I, or didn't we just do this yesterday? Yes. Um, we generate more trash than we should. So now we're kind of working on skipping the whole protesting part, which gives me a stress response in which I have explained patiently. I hope that comes off as entitlement. Like, see, and I have to watch, you know, I, I had a, um, <laughs> um, a, a counselor kind of holler at me that I was being too grandiose and I had a real sense of um, martyrdom. So I have to work on that. Wait, was this the famous Terry Real? Terry Real. Oh, yes. <laughs> and he, I feel like I'd have flashbacks from my session oh my quite frequently <laughs> if, I, if I went and saw Terry. Oh, yes. And he laid it down and he said, you know, he yelled at me to climb off the cross because he said that I was so, um, you know, being such a martyr. And I caught myself doing it when I was explaining to Tom because I said, nobody has to ask me to to, to uh, take out the trash. I just do it, you know. And while that does happen to be true, it, it does, you know, tone is everything, right? And I've really been looking closely at the systems that are working and not working. And, and I, just to put a happy face on it, it, it is an opportunity in in your own life to try and straighten some stuff out. Again, there's nowhere to hide. We, we have right. to deal with stuff. So um, well, Jancy, I feel like you let us right into the next question because okay. right now 
it feels like, and I feel like it's also being researched more and more of the burden is falling on women's shoulders. From oh, yeah. your research, I wanted to know why is this happening? Do you think it's the social conditioning that women will fix things or mm-hmm. that we are the more malleable sex? Um, what, what seems to be this burden that women are taking on the cause of it? Okay. I mean, this is such a big question and it's such a good question. And yes, of course, it is the social conditioning that women will fix things and, you know, kind of um, put their own needs second. Um, I mean, the bigger picture answer is that a crisis like this, it, it definitely shows up the existing inequalities. And our, our economy is only possible because of women's unpaid work. So the unpaid labor at home, I know there's been, you know, a ton of ink spilled about this, but things like cooking, cleaning, caring for kids, caring for aging parents. You know, a lot of us out there are arranging like grocery delivery for our parents, you know, if they're around and things like that. So it's the work that you do because you have to. And so, you know, the coronavirus has had this huge effect on unpaid labor because, you know, we've had to take care of our kids. That has increased, you know, taking care of our elderly parents, that's increased. Um, You know, people are sick. And so the responsibilities fall on the share of women. Um, Women do more work in the home than men. Um, The the global average is three times more. Um, And in some countries, it's six or seven times more. Um, It certainly feels like that sometimes in this country. So that kind of underpins everything. So maybe, again, a good thing that could come out of this is that um, men today are, you know, in heterosexual relationships are much more, they're, they're pitching in a lot more at home just because you have to. And maybe it will stick. I mean, you know, there's been some research that sometimes these sorts of habitual changes do stick. So, um I don't know. You know, I mean, I mean it makes I, perfect sense. It kind of it's, it's shining a light. It's magnif- magnifying inequities that were already there. Yes, it's just the added stress shows it more. Like that, we were buckling because it's just it's too much. Um, and I think, as a side note, just hearing you talking to you, reading your book, I think this book helps women understand how to give some pushback to their husband in a positive way. I think a lot of people think that when you do that, it's going to cause a negative impact in your relationship. But I found expecting more from my husband and communicating that kindly, like we're in a better place because of that. Um, So I just wanted to point that out too, for people that are struggling right now. But I also loved this next question from our listener, Valerie. She said, what strategies that you tried in your book seemed the most effective long-term and which ones are you still implementing today? Excellent question. And it goes back to your point. It really does. It's about spelling things out clearly and being an advocate for yourself and, and to do it, you're right, kindly and politely. Like, I realized I was being more polite to Andre, our UPS guy. I mean, I'm always happy to see him, but you know, instead of my husband. And so I was doing the thing where I was fuming. I was hate preparing dinner. 
because he wasn't helping me. So I was banging, you know, things around rather than just communicating clearly, which is hard to do. Going back to vulnerability, spelling out what you need can be hard to do. And sometimes it's easier to sort of sit in anger or self-righteousness than to, than to say what you need. So it was a real exercise for me to spell things out clearly, to not expect him to read my mind because he was never reading my mind ever, like hundred percent of the time. And again, Terry real, who is apparently my guru, right? But he said, okay, here's what you have to do. You have to say things like, here's some phrases I'd like you to get to know. One is what I'd like you to do is, and what I'd like to have happen is perfectly polite and being specific. Because if you, if you're yelling things like, I do everything around here, which is what I, that was the prime thing I said. Well, that gives him, (laughs) (laughs) and it gives, it gives him nowhere to go. If you just say that, well, what, what, what does he do going forward? He doesn't have anywhere to go. You're just sort of boxing him in. And so I got specific and I got vulnerable. And, and the other thing was probably, um, for Valerie's good question is paraphrasing. That was a game changer for us and continues to be, it's simply people just want to be heard. And I heard this from everybody I interviewed. I mean, I interviewed, I don't know, 50, 60, 70. I I didn't even know how many experts I interviewed And, and everyone, no matter if they were neuroscientists or behavioral scientists or the FBI guy, um, that I interviewed this, um, crisis negotiator, People just want to be heard. So paraphrasing, which is the, the easiest trick in the book, when you say your piece, all your partner has to do is say it back to them in your own in their own words. And Tom used to do the thing where he would repeat what I say robotically, and I knew he actually wasn't listening. He was just repeating what I said, and he was thinking about something else. Like he would say, you need for me to call the pediatrician. But it, what, he would do it in robot voice, and I knew. But if he paraphrases it in his own words, you're saying that um, you do all the pediatrician work and maybe you like for me to call and book an appointment once in a while. But I would know that a part, a part of his brain had to process what I, was, what I was trying to get across. And being heard takes the wind out of your sails immediately. It's such a huge relief. Am I talking too much? I feel like my answer. No, no, but it's exactly it. And it's so inviting. Like, it's so inviting just to lead into a better part of the conversation. So, yeah, that paraphrasing. um, I know Amy and I both started using that in our relationships. (laughs) Right away, we're like, oh, wait, this works. Like, this is a really easy (laughs) thing we can start doing today. And it works. (laughs) So, Jancy, are there any chapters that you find yourself reviewing? Or maybe your husband, Tom, asks you to revisit. I know that in creating this podcast, it's full of research. We have different parenting, different marriage advice. And Amy and I definitely find ourselves needing to go back and visit some of those topics that we covered (laughs) in the past. So what about for you? It would be, hmm, I would say how to fight fairly because it's very hard in the moment to be rational sometimes, right? And to calm yourself down and to, um, to fight like grownups. And so we, you know, fighting fairly, I have to review a lot and go back because, um, it, the advice that even I wrote down tends to fly out of my head when I get upset and it's about treating each other with respect. So constantly before I open my mouth, I'll say, is this respectful? Because, um, you know, a couple of different um, counselors told us you, you, you have to fight like grownups, especially in front of your child. And so 
that was hard. How to fight fairly. Start with, with I statements rather than you, rather than you're a slob. Start with, I wish you would pick up your things. It would make my life a lot easier not to trip on things when I'm holding a baby um, or, or, or things like that. So, so how to fight fairly because, you know, I have um, a, a bit of a temper Tom would say more than a bit. So, so that's, that's what I have to go back in. Yeah. Oh gosh. This is so much fun. Jancy. Thank you. (laughs) So another listener asked, how do you negotiate household chores when your husband's job is very demanding and he doesn't get much downtime? So this is such a good question. I am so looking forward to the response that you have here. Okay. I get this a lot and I get it a lot. Um, also from stay-at-home moms, right? And mm-hmm. and then the husband, and I do understand his point of view. Again, in like hetero relationships, and especially if if the if the mom is staying home with the kids, he has been working all week, and he he's like, I'm off duty on the weekend. I have to rest. I have to catch up. You know, I'm fried, and that is a legitimate point, also. But um, you know, so I consulted a number of experts about this, and um. There's a there's a therapist in Dallas whose work I love. Her name's Ann Donwald. And she says to say that if you're, especially if you're home with the kids all day, you're working a seven-day job. And federal labor law dictates that we have to have two 20-minute breaks and a half-an-hour lunch and an eight-hour shift. I mean, so if, if you're sleeping for eight hours, which that's negotiable, say you have two eight-hour shifts, that's at least two hours, 20 minutes that you get off. So how are you getting that? And she said that that point makes sense to men sometimes not to be all gendered, but like when you put it in numbers like that, because did he have an hour for lunch? Did he go to the gym? If gyms are open in your area during the pandemic, pandemic, you know, let's look at the hours during the week and try to make it equitable and, and equitable. I say this throughout the book, equitable doesn't, mean equal. It doesn't mean 50-50 because that is a losing game if you're trying to make it 50-50. It just needs to feel fair to you. Feeling fair to one person might be a whole different equation for another person, you know. And I mean, you know, look, I have a friend with three children and she's a stay-at-home mom and her husband would say constantly, oh, you have it easy. You just go to the park all day. Three kids under five at the park is work. It's not easy. you're trying to prevent them from running out into the street, which my two-year-old loved to do and be killed. And never once did he take them to the park because it's not easy or he would do it on the weekends, you know, and um, if it's a cakewalk. So it's about being your own advocate, which is hard. It's hard to stay on your own side, but if you're burnt out and he's not pitching in at all, I mean, you know, I started slowly with Tom and I would say, we would do the old, like, who works harder and who deserves more downtime on the weekend. But even if he, I started saying, like, look, I'm going to go get a coffee for 45 minutes, I really savored the hell out of those 45 minutes. And I came back a different person. So stay-at-home mothers, that is work. It's, love, it's lovely work, but it's work. And, and, and everyone needs some time off. Right. I completely agree. And... We talked to another expert about this, Molly Millwood, and I was talking to her about the concept of immersion therapy. So mm-hmm. if your partner doesn't think that staying home with three kids is work, 
taking a break, removing yourself so that you're completely out of the house. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not to punish him. It's just to show him like this yeah. is a lot of work to manage three little people. Um, and I hope that would just provide him enough insight to be more empathetic, to be more of a team player um, in that capacity. Another thing that came up, which is right along the subject line, is what if the spouse is going through a really hard season? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, all of us are going to go through different points where our jobs are stressful or something comes up. And I feel like women are very attuned to their partner and wanting to help them. But mm-hmm. what is the balance between supporting them through a hard season and making sure that you don't burn out yourself? Oh my God. I'm loving all these questions. Okay. So, you know, number one, and that is, yeah, you, you, you know, it's that caretaker impulse, right? And, but you can't, first of all, let's, and I wrote about this because I write, I editorialize every single aspect of my life, but symptoms of burnout, um, ju- you know, I think it's worth pointing out that, um, and they, it, they disproportionately, burnout disproportionately affects women. So just recognize these symptoms. You have to monitor your own health, your own mental health and physical health. Fatigue that can be so utter and complete that you don't feel like getting out of bed. Um, loss of enjoyment in the things you used to love is a huge symptom of burnout. And, you know, everyone can say like, I'm, uh, I'm definitely burned out. You know, these are things I feel all the time, but you know, just the more extreme versions of these, um, feelings of detachment, hopelessness, um, irritability, forgetfulness, um, inability to pay attention that goes well beyond mom brain. You know, the hopelessness is a big one and increased headaches, being more prone to sickness than usual. I really would urge um, women in particular to monitor themselves for these symptoms of burnout and um, you know, to, to, you have to take care of yourself, right. Or everything comes crumbling down. I mean, you know, treat yourself the way you would a friend. I I realized that um, I'm from New Jersey. So I would, I would insult myself when I didn't do something well. And I I caught myself with self-talk you know, saying like, you dumb bitch, which is what I would yell in traffic or something if I was, you know, driving down the, you know, um, New Jersey turnpike. Well, why would I call that? Why, why I would, I shouldn't call myself that I should, you know, my friend calls herself sweetheart and she talks to herself soothingly. So now I call myself sweetheart. I hold my own hand when I'm feeling anxious and I sort of squeeze it, which seems kind of corny, but like, you know, again, you have to stay on your own side. So monitor your own symptoms. You know, I, I, I know I'm a broken record with trying not to put yourself last. And I had to key into my own um, feelings of being superwoman and say like, okay, if, if you go down, it all comes down. That's not necessarily so, but telling myself that I was the foundation for the family kind of gave me strength and the ability to, um, to, to take care of myself. Wow. That may be the longest answer. Are you, are you wow. No, that's, that's great. And knowing okay. that you can't do it all and being okay with that is the yes. first step. Like it's, that's just 
as somebody who identifies as type A here, I do feel like I need to be superwoman. I do need to be that foundation, but no, we don't have to be. Like, it's okay. It's okay. And it goes right. so far beyond just the mental aspect of burnout. You do start to feel it in the physical symptoms, like you mentioned, with fatigue and headaches. Yes. Completely. So a lot of women struggle with that. But another thing that women struggle with is mom guilt. So we yeah. were on this journey with you, Chancy. As we read, you really started to figure it out, like how to take time away from your daughter first for just a couple of hours on the weekend and then <laughs> the whole night away from her. So we want you to give our listeners a pep talk right now, um, <laughs> something that many of us, we struggle with. So as we minimize or conquer the mom guilt, I feel like we have to extend our hand back to those who are really struggling right now. And how can we start to help them? Yes. Yes. Oh, that's so huge. And I was, I was right there. I really, truly felt like I was going to somehow ruin my baby and my toddler and traumatize her if I went away, even for a little while, I felt like I always had to be within arm's reach. And we were in this tiny Brooklyn apartment, so I pretty much was within arm's reach. But I, I didn't even give myself permission to go out and, again, get a coffee. I just, I keep mentioning coffee, but I remember I was sort of like fetishizing, like going to get a coffee, you know, and sitting in the park. It does feel good. It does feel good. Right? And, and so start small. Start small and go take a walk. Don't take a walk with anyone. Take a walk with yourself and, 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 and feel free to think about what you want to think about. Or go to a big box store and don't buy something for somebody. Just look at all the stuff. Just look at all the stuff. Go to a park and walk around. Buy yourself a, a triple latte with whipped cream and caramel on it. Just, just, just start small and and do it. It's sort of like exposure therapy. You know, when you're scared of spiders, so you expose yourself to a spider or something. Um, the, the, the more you come back and you see that your, your child or your baby is, is uh, intact and that it's okay that you went away and that they're not, you know, on a tiny therapist's couch, um, then the better. And, and, and then you can work your way up to an hour. Then you can work your way up to going out to dinner with your friends. I mean, as you work your way up, keep telling yourself, this is not detracting from my offspring. This will make me a better mother to my child. Am I shouting? I might be. This will make me more patient. This will make me less reactive. This will make me kinder. Tell yourself, this will make me a better mother to my child, not a worse mother. You cannot run on fumes. You can't keep burning gas and not replenish the gas. What are you doing to replenish yourself? Ask yourself that. What kind of gas are you putting in the tank? Is there even a drop in there? You're not helping anyone if you run on fumes. Would your child be happier with an irritable mommy who snaps or a happy mommy? I mean, that's the thing too, is like, I was feeling resentful of my husband being home all the time. Well, I'm the one, he would say, go ahead and go up. I've got this. And I would think, I don't know if you've got this. And so I would stay home. Well, then there was an undercurrent of resentment in my dealings with him, which, you know, you're fooling yourself if you think that doesn't affect your child. But it was this prison I put myself under. So then when I finally started going out, I thought, ah, I came back so happy, gave, gave you know, my daughter Sylvia a big kiss and a hug, and I'm happy mommy instead of burned out, tired mommy who, you know, Sylvia's trying to talk to me and my eyes are closed and I'm laying on the couch, you know, and I'm like, just give mommy a minute. 
so so that's what I do now, you know. And and here's another thing, I I don't I didn't venture out of my house practically for years, and I remember shelling out tons of money that I emphatically did not have to take my two year old to the circus. We got front row seats so she could see the animals up close. The child doesn't remember a thing. Your your child is not going to be traumatized for life if you go out to dinner with your friends for two hours when they're two or three. One therapist told me that the greatest gift you can give your child is a happy marriage. And if you go away for the weekend with your husband and reconnect, you are strengthening that foundation. You are giving your child a gift. It is a long-term gift because it is really easy to stop connecting with your husband, to just plunge into everyday logistical stuff, right? And to not, to not connect. And then eventually everyone pays for that down the line. So that's my, that's my piece. Oh, that might, that, I think that was my favorite answer yet. I think it's (laughs) so important. I mean, Abby and I have been through it. It's like, once you get out of the starting blocks, and yes. you realize that it's benefiting the whole family. Yes. You really start to calm the mom guilt. But if you mm-hmm. never get out of the starting blocks, you just, you're imagining what it's going to be. Um, so I just want to echo everything she said. I feel the exact same way. Um, one but it took a while, right? It oh took my, a while. It just, you should have seen me, okay? Uh-huh. I would go to the gym, which mm-hmm. is like working out, taking care of yourself. I would still feel bad. I would literally run back to my car, like jog to my <laughs> car, sprint inside. And my husband would be like, dude, chill. Like, he is perfectly <laughs> fine. We've had a great time. And my husband has also been like, babe, that gives me time to like make my own connection with our kids. Like you always here doesn't help me like create these special bonds. So the boys now I've got three little boys. They'll have like pizza night when I go. And so it's an event for them as well. And um, Drew always talks about like, that's the best time where they're able. Sometimes when a mom is home, they're like in zombie mom mode where they want her and Mm -hmm. her to do everything. Um, so we have found benefit to the whole family. Yes, the the longer the longer he's home with them, the more eventually they may call for him to wipe them when they're on the toilet. You know, you, you this, well, I'm this still is waiting for that. But I'm <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> well, one of uh, the one of the parts of your book that really hit home for me was when you talked about how fighting impacts our little people. Our little people are far more perceptive and impacted by our relationship stress and habits than I think a lot of us realize. I found it interesting that in the book, you and your husband, you really started to change your you know, argument habits for the benefit of your daughter, Sylvie. If you can't yet do it for each other, you thought, let's do it for her. Do you feel like you guys were able to get to a place now where you're making shifts and adjustments to benefit your relationship in the two of you versus doing it for Sylvie? Yes. You know, you're right. Our motive at first was completely child centric and it was, uh Oh, we're ruining our child because I started reading research about, 
you know, babies as young as six months get impacted um, by their parents arguing. You know, these scientists measured brainwaves and they were having stressful reactions. They were having a stress reaction at six months. I mean, it, it breaks your heart, you know, and we were doing selective fighting. So we would fight with each other. We would be really chilly with each other, you know, at the breakfast table and then super sweet to our child. I, I know so many people recognize that where you're like, uh, I don't know. You, you have to go to the grocery store. I, I don't have time during the day. Sorry. Do you want some cereal, sweetheart? Mm-hmm. You do? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll get you a big bowl. You know, <laughs> we did a ton of that. And the child, she knew because her personality started changing. She, she knew what was up there. They're, they know they absorb everything. They're little sponges. And so we thought, uh, we didn't like that. We thought, Oh boy, we need to change. So we don't alter her personality. And I, I feel depressed that that was, that was our motive. It, it truly wasn't, Oh, our marriage is in the toilet. It was about, uh Oh, we're going to ruin our child. And that is, that was a real sign also that we needed to get back on track because it, at that point, it, w- it had nothing to do with each other. So, you know, I used to feel guilty about that, but I let that go. And I thought, whatever works, if, if that's what works for you to, to find your way back to each other is, uh, oh, we're going to ruin our kid. Great. If it just gets you going, great. And then the more we re- the more we spent, you know, we started off really small. We would, we would um, just spend 10 minutes at the end of the day talking about anything but our child and about buying paper towels. So, we just talked to each other like we did in the old days when we were dating. And it, it went from there. And the more genuine connections we made, the more it did shift. And it became about um, being kind to each other again. And eventually it wasn't child-centric. It was, oh, you know, you're a guy that I love, that I loved enough to have um, impregnate me in the first place, you know. And, and, and that, that made everything much better. So then it became real. But it took a while. And the journey to get to that solution will look different for everyone, but hey, you got to the yeah. solution. So whatever works, works. It may have just started off absolutely but ended up with a very healthy relationship. Yes. So Jancy, a lot of our listeners loved, and Amy and I included, that you touched on sex and money. These are Yeet. huge reasons for relationship dissatisfaction, but they're hard to talk about. So Jancy, just like you on this podcast, we talk about the hard things. We talk about the uncomfortable things. Yes. Do you have any advice on how women can start to broach these more sensitive topics to get to a better place in their own relationships? Okay. I would, again, coming from um, the position of vulnerability, which is hard, and money, you know, talk about a stress response. I mean, it was so interesting when I started delving into, when people talk about money, you know, researchers have measured people's heart rates and they jump up. I mean, you you can't believe how much people's hearts hammer when they talk about money because it isn't some cold topic. It isn't a pile of cash. It's, there's a lot of emotion behind it and it's really about survival. And so I would, a good way to broach the sensitive topic is money is I would share, um, there's this emerging therapy. I mean, um, it's this emerging yeah, therapy. It's called a financial therapy. And it's, it's about how money has impacted you when you were growing up, what you, what it meant when you were a child, what your fears around money are, how your parents acted around money or parent. Um, it's really important to have this conversation. And, um, so we sat down and we started really talking about, it's, it's what's called a money script. And it's, 
you know, you, you can't get on the same page until you know what money means to you. And for me, money growing up, my dad was super responsible and he would do tax. He would do, um, bills every Sunday while he was watching, um, the giants game. And it was all very transparent. Well, my husband grew up in a household where there wasn't much money. His mom worked at a factory. And when she got bills, um, and they were, he was a child of divorce. She would just throw the bills in a drawer. So money to, to him was a secretive, scary thing. And so even just something like that, the more we talked about it, the more we could connect up to what was going on now. And also to be as transparent as you can. I mean, with money, as with most fraught topics, you know, secrecy is not a good thing. <laughs> and I wrote about this as well for the um, Times Parenting section. Like, you really have to have pretty much full transparency. And um, then you can, you know, if you don't want to review everything that you spend to your to your spouse, you can put aside a little discretionary money that, you know, every month that you can do what you want with and you don't have to run everything by them. But there shouldn't be um, what's called financial infidelity. And and so to get on the same page and to talk about what money means to you is, is tre- was tremendously helpful uh, for us. And then it made me understand why my husband would, would raise his voice every time we talked about money. For him, it was about fear. Um, for me, it was about security. And those are two completely different things. Um, and that made me more empathetic towards him. Like, oh, of course, you know, this is what you grew up with. So now I understand instead of being like, what's your problem, you know? And then as for sex, it is so difficult to talk about. It's so embarrassing. And if things aren't going well, you don't want to hurt their feelings. But there's so much research that you shouldn't sweep it under the rug because studies show that couples who are at least talking about their lack of sex, um, if you're having that issue, are doing better than those who don't talk about it at all. It shows at least that they care. So bring it up, of course, when you are not in bed or wherever you happen to have sex. Bring it up during a neutral time and just, you can, you know, have a really clear conversation. You can ask, I mean, you know, I talked to a number of sex therapists, just ask, are you happy with our sex life right now? Um, and, and then I remember asking Tom, what's uh, the bare minimum that would make you happy? Which is also a good question. And there's research that if you have sex once a week, um, there's a huge meta study about this. Um, with all these sex therapists, um, you know, thousands and thousands of people, that the sweet spot is once a week. You can do once a week. You know, it's not impossible. So have a dialogue, even if you don't want to. Just keep reminding yourself. If you're talking about it, you're doing a lot better than, than not talking about it. But the more you don't talk about it, you know, it's called bed death. And and especially when you first have the baby and you're worried about stitches or, 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 you know, leakage or, or things popping or, you know, weeks can turn into months, which can turn into years. Um, so, yeah, I guess what I'm getting out of that answer is any of these subjects that we are avoiding Mm -hmm. avoidance, isn't going to make anything better. So no, these, these might be sticky at first. We've also Mm -hmm. had a sex therapist on the podcast who was so insightful. Um, I, it just, I think it might go better, probably especially the sex talk, than some of our listeners are thinking. So like pulling 
that band-aid off just a little bit to get yourselves into a better place. Um, I thought that those two chapters were so insightful. So thank you for including them. I wanted to ask when women are talking to you about your book, is there Mm -hmm. a part that they bring up the most often? You know, you know what it probably is, I would say is, um, is the, is the shame is that I'm, I'm just amazed at, you know, we're a culture that, that, that talks about things, right. But this is still a taboo subject. And so, and so I would say the main thing that they bring up is, oh my God, I felt shame too. I didn't tell anybody anything. I didn't even tell my closest friends. And I, I don't, I, it makes me so sad, you know, it, it, because because of this weight that we put on ourselves to, um, to be so together and it's okay not to be together. And so the most helpful thing, I guess, you know, to the second part of what you say is, um, it was sort of a more general thing that I mostly hear, which is that conflict arises. And this is, this is what they repeat back to me probably the most is conflict arises when things aren't clear. And that goes back to the sex thing we were just talking about and the money thing we were talking about and everything. Like we used to do this thing where um, we would, every weekend we would say like, who deserves to sleep in? And, and then we, we, one day we said, Oh wait, why don't you sleep in on Saturday and I'll sleep in on Sunday. And things were clear and like expecting him to pitch in and do more housework rather than just saying, Hey, could you get up and stop playing um, social chess on your computer and come help me? That's clear. And so clarity, 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 you know, I'm not happy with our sex life. That is clear. And so the more systems that we could put into place where things were clear, even if it was like you do the grocery shopping and I'll put the groceries away. I mean, it's not sexy. It's super boring, but as much things that could run on autopilot like that are, are clear. And as, and as, you know, and, and talking very, directly about things that are bothering you is clear. So that's probably what they say to me the most is like, wow, I never thought about it that way. And that makes me pretty happy. And where there's clarity, everyone seems to win. Like everyone seems to win when there's clarity. And right? there might be some solutions you have to put in place. There's definitely a lot of communication. But, uh, yeah, I can see that now. That definitely would be a piece that gets brought up a lot. Nancy, thank you for being on the podcast today and for answering all of our listener questions. You have made this community book club a ton of fun. So for everyone listening, if you have not read her book, How to Not Hate Your Husband After Kids, 